Now, we are delighted to have Victor, Pastor Victor Maxwell with us, and we're going to ask him now to come and minister uh, to us as the Lord gives him help. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you very much for the very kind invitation and the welcome here this evening, a joy to return to Kerry Duff Free Presbyterian Church, and I want to thank the Reverend McLaughlin for the opportunity and indeed the enduring friendship over many years. I have a, I have a Bible reading this evening in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're reading at verse 12 of that chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, and this is the word of the Lord. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now, on to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And amen. May God bless to us the reading of his sacred word. It's a joy and a pleasure this evening to be invited to share a personal word of testimony uh, we're looking back of many years, and it does remind me of the story of a, a man whose wife had become ill and wanting to do something to encourage her. He decided that he would bake her favorite bread. He had never done it in his life before, but he got an idea of what he would put together. So he went to the shop and he bought the flour and the margarine and uh, uh, everything else and bought a packet of yeast when it came to baking it and kneading it all together, he wasn't sure how much yeast he should put in, so he put it all in. And as he got the dough ready and got it into the tin, and soon it was in the oven, and as it was baking, he went upstairs to his wife and said, well, Annie, I, I'm baking you something. And just with that, the smell of the baking bread was wafting through the house. And she said, you didn't, you're not baking me that loaf. He says... I am. The only thing is, Annie, I didn't know how much yeast to put in, so I put it all in. Oh, she said, Jimmy, that, that's terrible. And just with that, there was an almighty bang downstairs. And he up and ran downstairs. And when he was downstairs, she shouted, Jimmy, can you not keep it in the oven? He shouted back, Annie, I can't keep it in the kitchen. <laughs> I say that this evening because looking back on 67 years as a Christian, it's hard to keep it all in and know where to start to tell the story. But let me start at the beginning. I was born on the Donegal Road in Belfast. Uh, I was born not into a Christian home, but a good home. My father was a football referee and the manager of Ross's Miller Water Factory in the center of the city. He took us to church every Sunday morning at Richview Presbyterian Church. And then the church hall was only about 50 yards from our home and we were at Sunday school in Christian Endeavor uh, since I was a, a nipper, as we say. I came through the Life Boys, the BB, and even other nights we went down to the GB, but that was for other reasons. And uh, uh, so church was my life. Dr. John Gervin was the city missioner at the little city mission hall just down the road from us. And we were there every Thursday night. And if you missed a night of John Gervin's children's meeting, he was riding on a bicycle the next day with a, a scowl on his face that put the fear of God in us, and we never missed the children's meetings. Uh, for all of that, coming up through all those days of Sunday school, learning the gospel, uh, I didn't become a Christian. I say this this evening, I thank God for a Sunday school teacher who was faithful to us. His name was Billy Hamilton. Billy could never have stood on a platform like this to speak, but he taught five boys in his class, taught them the scriptures faithfully every week, and taught us the catechism faithfully every week. 
Out of that Sunday school class of five boys, uh, Trevor, uh, sorry, John McCoy went to Ethiopia as a missionary, and today he is a brethren evangelist. Uh, Trevor Coburn became a Presbyterian minister. Um, uh, Joe McCartney or Morris Sloan, one of those two, went to Brazil as a missionary. And then I went to Brazil as a missionary, and Eddie Hoy stood behind, stayed behind to pray for the other four who went. Uh, back in those days, Billy Hampton could never see what God would do with a Sunday school class. And I say that to encourage Sunday school teachers. When I came through school, I went to the Linfield Intermediate School, just not too far from our home. But I remember while at school, I was deeply impressed by the death of two boys. One of them was called Bobby McIntyre. Bobby didn't turn up at school one day, and uh, as a matter of fact, he didn't turn up for that week, nor was he there for the following week. And then we heard that Bobby was so very ill, and very soon we heard he had died. He was only 13 years of age at that time, but we heard that Bobby had become a Christian and had gone home to be with the Lord Jesus. I was impressed with that, having learned the scriptures, etc. Uh, but also that same year on Ride Day, that's the day when students uh, had a lot of fun around the city, another young boy, a 13-year-old boy from our class, hopping on the back of a truck, fell off the truck on the library hill of Donegal Road and was run over by a bus. He also was killed. But alas, there was no testimony that he had become a Christian. And even at 13 years of age, I would lie awake at night wondering, if that had been me, where would I be in eternity? Would I, like Bobby Hamilton, go home to heaven and spend eternity there? Or would it be that I would have no such testimony and no such hope? However, I, I left school back in those days. 14-year-old boys got into short, out of short trousers and into long trousers. I think we used to call it, we slid down the banister. At 14 years of age, we went to work. I got a job as a a telegram boy at the post office in Belfast. At 16 years of age, we got a motorcycle, a motorcycle, the old BSA Bantam, 125 Bantam, and all around the city of Belfast delivering telegrams with speed. Among the telegram boys, there was a boy called Sammy Patterson, and he said to me one Sunday, listen, instead of going to Richview tonight, why don't you come with me to the Ravenhill Road? There's a preacher over there, and I guarantee that you'll not fall asleep in his services. He's speaking of the Dr. Ian Paisley, and my granny just lived a stone's throw from Ian Paisley's church. She never threw any stones at his church, but she lived immediately at the back of his church, and so I was glad to go to the Ravenhill Road. When Dr. Paisley preached, he had a platform wider than this pulpit, and as he preached, he paraded up and down the platform, sometimes shaking the doors outside as, as uh, he, he told of men and women pleading to get into heaven, but they had rejected Christ. Sometimes he came down the aisle pleading with people to come to the Savior. I sat up in the gallery, and as he preached, I trembled. I trembled because I knew I needed to become a Christian. I knew I needed to be saved, but I was afraid as Dr. Paisley preached, I say this this evening, I can't remember anything he preached. But as he was preaching, all that Billy Hampton had taught me in Sunday school came back to me, came back into my mind. I was a sinner. I needed to be saved. Bobby McIntyre died. He had gone to heaven. And when the appeal was made, I, I so wanted to become a Christian. I wanted to put my hand up. But I was paralyzed with fear. The Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. And that fear was a, a snare to me. I was afraid because I was afraid I'd never be able to keep it, as I wrongly thought. Uh, and then I was afraid of what people would say. As a telegram boy, there were 70 telegram boys, all the age between 16 and 18 years of age. And I can imagine going into work the next day to tell them I'd become a Christian, why they would make fun of me if I were to do that. And so, paralyzed with that fear, I... I didn't respond. I left the service. But I went back the next Sunday night and the following Sunday night, five Sunday nights, until the 28th of October, 1956, again sitting in the gallery, again wrestling in my heart, wanting to become a Christian, but still resisting 
the Holy Spirit striving in my heart, resisting. When the service was over, I was coming down the stairs with my friend Sammy Hamilton, uh, Sammy Patterson, when I spied a girl that I'd gone to school with, uh, Lily Campbell, as we knew her then. Lily, I, I was surprised to see her. She was as white as a ghost. Since leaving school, she had spent two years in Foster Green Hospital. She had had tuberculosis. And absolutely surprised to see her, I said, Lily, what are you doing here? And she answered, Victor, what are you doing here? Are you a Christian? With that question, I was stunned. I shook my head and said, no, Lily, I'm not a Christian. And she said to me, would you not like to become a Christian? My friend, on that moment, I was faced with making the decision. In my heart, I so wanted to, but still gripped with fear. But from somewhere within me, I found the grace to say, yes, I'd love to become a Christian. And so that night, beside Dr. Paisley, I knelt in the old inquiry room and asked the Lord Jesus Christ into my heart. I'm looking back on that night so many years ago, and I still say today, oh, happy day that fixed my choice. On thee, my Savior and my God, well may this glowing heart rejoice to tell its raptures all abroad. I didn't know on that night that the rest of my life would be taken up with speaking of the raptures and the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, I had to go home and tell my parents I'd become a Christian. My mother used to say to me, Victor, your head's full of notions. You'll get over it soon. Well, thank God, 67 years later, I've still never got over the joy of coming to Jesus Christ. However, I had to go to work the next day and face 70 telegram boys, all of them teenagers, and tell them I'd become a Christian. As a matter of fact, when I went to work the next day at half past six in the morning, I got there. I didn't need to tell 70 telegram boys I only told two or three, and within ten minutes, all of them knew about it. Did they make fun? Of course they made fun. Maxie, come and sing for us. Sing a few choruses. Give us a preach, Maxwell. And so it went on. But others came and shook my hand and said, God bless you. I wish it was me. Over the course of the next five years, I had the joy of pointing those, some of those telegram boys to personal faith in Christ. Some of them went into Christian work to become missionaries. Others became ministers of the gospel. And I say this to all young people this evening, not only too important to seek the Lord while he may be found, but always take your stand and confess him. The Bible says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Never be afraid to take your stand for Jesus Christ. After I was converted, uh, uh, one day I was delivering meal on the Woodstock Road on a street called O'Meath Street. As you went up the streets in those days, most, most doors or most houses and the window had net curtains and a brass pot with a plant in it. That's a lot of people had it that way. But in O'Meath Street, while most houses were like that, I came to a house that had no curtains and had no plant. There were posters down the window for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen to the sermons of D.L. Moody, R.A. Torrey. I thought the house was different. And when I knocked the door, the man who opened the door, he certainly was different. He had the broadest, brightest smile I've ever seen in my life. He introduced himself as Ernie Allen, the founder of Revival Movement and the Every Home Crusade. When he heard that I was a Christian, why, immediately he had me in the door, and very soon I was recruited to go testifying with him and sing in the choirs. He was holding gospel missions, bringing missionaries or evangelists from the United States. Of course, it was the beginning of every home crusade, and in those days, we were attending Dunmurray Free Presbyterian Church, and Ernie gave me a case full of literature to do every home in Dunmurray, wrapping all the doors Spreading the gospel of Christ. Those were great days looking back now, even though at times we did it with fear and trembling. It was in 1958 or 59 in July of that year that a group of us young people decided on a July day to go up the Antrim coast. The beauties of the Antrim coast and over Tor Head. There were nine of us, fellas and girls, and when we got to Port Rush on that beautiful July day, we went in swimming swimming in the blue pool. The blue pool is a natural formation of rocks 
that at high tide, it's quite deep and forms quite a pool. I think they call it the blue pool because that's the color you turn when you get into the water of the North Atlantic up there. But uh, uh, we were having the time of our lives, diving, swimming, jumping, uh, fellas, girls. But there was one girl, a girl from Jamaica. She didn't turn blue. She went a sort of color of gray. She couldn't swim as she sat in the water holding on to the, the steps into the pool. And uh, one of the girls said to me, Victor, take Dorothy across the pool. She can't swim. Well, I had a problem then. I still have a problem often. That is, I find it difficult to say no. So I decided I'd take Dorothy across the pool. I'd seen people do it. I was floating on my back and holding her as I got across. But when we got halfway across the pool, Dorothy panicked and grabbed me by the throat. And before long, both of us were onto the water. She's still grabbing on to me. When we buoyed up again, by this time people were jumping in and yelling. They grabbed Dorothy, but I went down a second time. And then buoyed up again, and people were trying to get me, but I went down the third time. And at 18 years of age, I thought my life was just about over. Someone from below me came and with a strong arm pushed me up onto the rocks away from the shore on the ocean side of the, the pool. Uh, they tried to uh, get the water out of me, pumping at me, and very soon they, they threw a life belt over. And by this time, quite a crowd had gathered at the, at the poolside. They threw the life belt over, and uh, they pulled me across the water and got me out. And amongst the crowd, there was Dr. Love uh, from the Victoria Hall. And he gave me artificial respiration as he pumped in my lungs. And I I think just about half of the Atlantic was pumped out of my lungs that day. And very soon the blue bell of the ambulance was on the scene and I was rushed off to Coleraine Hospital. I was in Coleraine Hospital for three, four days. And during these, those three or four days, God really spoke to my heart. 18 years of age, some of you perhaps are at that age. And I thought to myself, my life was almost over. I was a Christian. I'd I had assurance, blessed assurance of heaven, but, but what about my life? And on that hospital bed, I surrendered all of my life to Jesus Christ. Whatever you want me to be, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, Lord, I, I surrender all to Jesus Christ. My life came under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It was during that time uh, that God began to speak to me about missions. In those days, we were attending missionary prayer meetings, the ACRI prayer meeting, the WEC prayer meeting, the UFM prayer meeting. We were writing to missionaries, writing missionary books, challenged about missionaries, until I felt God was calling me to be a missionary. And I remember when I, I felt this, I waited behind one Sunday night to speak to the minister at Dunmurray, and he said to me, Victor, go home and tell the Lord exactly what you've told me, and ask God to speak to you out of his word. Don't open the Bible at random. Take your Bible reading and ask God to speak to you out of the reading. I remember that Sunday night, no one was at home and before the bed with an open Bible, I prayed, Lord, if it's you that's speaking to me, if you want me to be a missionary, then speak to me through your word. John chapter 6 is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And after it was uh, over, the Lord Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go to the other side. He went to the mountain to pray. You probably know the story. In the midst of the storm, in the dead of the night, the most distant part from shore, those disciples were hit with a terrible storm. The waves undoubtedly were breaking over the bow of the ship, and the Bible says that they feared for their lives when Jesus came walking to them on the water. They were afraid that they had seen a spirit, and they cried out. Now, I'm reading, asking the Lord, Lord, are you calling me? Is this your voice? And verse 20 came with words that touched my heart, impacted my heart. Jesus said, it is I, be not afraid. It is I, be not afraid. I say that's more than 60 years ago, and I, I still need that verse every day. Just to know that Jesus is guiding and he's going before us, and he's repeatedly saying, it is I. Be not afraid. I say that this evening. I'm, Audrey's here, so I can't tell you how she ran after me, but that wouldn't be the truth. 
I ran after Audrey, and very soon uh, both of us shared this vision that God was calling us to the mission field. We started to go together, but Audrey went off to the Bible College of Wales in Swansea, while I went to the Bible College of the WEC in Glasgow. After two years at WEC, I went to the Mystery School of Medicine in London, and so, although we went together for five years, we seldom saw each other. I would write the letters and kiss the envelope and send it to Audrey, and that was about the height of our courtship back in those days. At Bible College, I was deeply challenged because my mum and dad and brother, they weren't Christians, and although God was calling us to go overseas so far away to preach the gospel, yet at home, they weren't Christians, and so I began to pray that God would touch their hearts before we would leave for the mission field. While at Bible college, we got an invitation, that is the college students, who went out on missions every year. An invitation came in from Newton Braid Baptist Church to do a mission. That was April 1963. I led a team of young fellows, five of us, and we had a, a gospel mission two weeks God blessed in that mission. Many precious souls were saved, and many young people, as a result of that mission, were called to the mission field, and today some of them are still in Christian work. God so blessed the meetings that we were asked to do a, an extra week. And I remember preaching on the last night of that gospel mission after three weeks. I preached in Jeremiah 8 and 20. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and you are not saved. Thank God that night one man was saved. It was my father. He trusted Christ as Savior, and that brought a big change to our home. Very soon my mother trusted the Lord, and in that same year my, my brother under the ministry of Dr. Paisley also came to Christ. I tell you this, keep on praying for your family. God does answer prayer. Audrey and I had applied to Acre Gospel Mission. We knew the missionaries, and we felt God was calling us to Brazil. And applying in 1964, we were accepted, married on the 30th of January, 65, to sail to Brazil within two weeks. Looking back, it was too soon, but the ship was delayed for several weeks. And on the 5th of April, 1965, we left for Brazil. A big crowd down at the docks to see us off. Uh, and we were sailing with Fred Orr. Nowadays, you can get to Brazil too quickly. You can get there in 18 hours. But in those days, to get to Brazil, it took our boat six weeks to get to Brazil. I mean, we were traveling from Liverpool to Cork, Cork to Lisbon, Lisbon to Barbados, Barbados to Trinidad, Trinidad to the mouth of the Amazon. And then from the mouth of the Amazon, the same ship took us a 1,000 miles upriver to the city of Manaus, and having left on the 5th of April, we got to Manaus on the 16th of May. I say all that because back in those days, I used to get my hair cut every two weeks, short back and sides, as we called it. But having been at sea for six weeks, I desperately needed a haircut. <coughs> and so in the city of Manaus, which is a city in those days of 200,000 people, I spied in the center of the city a, a barber's shop. And um, I went in. The man showed me the chair. I sat down. I didn't know how to. He tried to talk to me, but I couldn't speak back. And so he began to cut my hair as he talked and talked and cutting and cutting. And I realized it was getting too short, and I didn't know how to tell him that's enough. But I do remember seeing at the traffic lights, the sign read, said, Pare, P-A-R-E, stop. So I said to the barber, Pare. He looked at me. It's only then that he began to cut. I mean, sparks coming out of the scissors over the top of my head. And he left me with a little tuft of hair in front of what was known as a military haircut in Brazil. What I learned afterwards, uh, the word pari sounds like a word a pari, which means take a little more off. You, you don't tell the barber uh, that. Uh, the word, you say to the barber, you have arrived. That's what you would say to the barber. But a parry, well, he, he took a lot more off and left me with, it taught me I needed to learn this language. And so Audrey and I began language study. Our colleague, Bill Woods, of course, fell into difficulty also. He, he was a short while in Boca do Acre. He needed to buy batteries for his radio, but he didn't know how to speak yet. So he asked Molly Harvey if she would write out to the man, have you any batteries? And so the man wrote it out. 
The word for battery is pilia. When Molly wrote it out, do you, O Senor, think pilia? That is, do you have any batteries? The word pilia, well, pilia means a, a daughter. Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry. Pilia means a battery. But the P looked like an F. And so when he got to the shop, instead of asking for pilias, he said to the man, do you have any filias? That is, do you have any daughters? And the man said, yes, I do. Bill says, I'd like to buy five of them, please. Eh? So maybe that's for that reason he's never been married, but he didn't get the five daughters that night. And so it is that we went to study in the town of Labria. Labria had been a hard place. It's where Fred Orr's wife had died at only 29 years of age. We learned the, uh, the language. We started our language study in August, and by the month of November, Fred had me on my feet preaching, haltingly in Portuguese. In the month of December, we moved to Kanotama to join Bill Woods. Kanotama had been, was, is a very poor and a very remote town. A Spanish priest dominated the town. Frazy Doria was his name. He dominated the town, but God moved into that town in a great way, and people were being converted. Our next-door neighbor, Senior Eufrazio, and his wife, Emilia, they both got saved. He'd been a murderer, one of the hardest men in town. People feared him, but had the joy of leading Eufrazio to Christ. Then God moved through that whole family until five of the sons and daughters trusted Christ the Savior. So many people were being converted in Kanatama that the priest who owned the only school in town, he made the order that uh, those who are leaving the Catholic Church to go to the evangelical church, their children can't come to school anymore. So there were many boys and girls who weren't allowed to go to school because their mom and dad had been converted. So Bill Woods and I, we, we started the school. We built the school. Uh, Bill had worked in an office and I'd been in the post office. We'd never built anything in our lives before. So we built a lean-to school. It needed to lean on something. We could have done with it. Uh, Reverend McLaughlin there as a joiner. Uh, we built a lean-to school. Uh, it needed to lean on something or it would have fallen down with us building it. But when we had finished, we had 90 boys and girls in that school, not only learning their reading, writing, arithmetic, but also learning the scriptures. And thank God many of those boys and girls today have been missionaries and pastors serving God in various parts of Brazil. Also in that town, there was a lot of danger in the town. At a particular time, an epidemic had hit the town of what was known as black fever. In our town, there were no doctors or nurses or no clinics. And uh, I guess because I'd been to the Missionary School of Medicine, I had learned enough to be dangerous. And so I was responsible in the town for extracting teeth and treating sickness, sometimes suturing wounds. Remember, I had to amputate a part of a man's ear on one occasion and, and just call for, for different things. But this terrible epidemic hit our town, and it hit children between the ages of three, four, up to 16 years of age. It swept through the town, and not only did we try to treat many of those children but they generally died after five days. We know of one family who lost six children within three months. Three of them died in the same week and two of them were buried in the same day. I still remember carrying some of them in my arms, trying to treat them. It was a terrible time. However, one Wednesday night, prayer meeting time, Audrey and Hazel were in the city of Manaus and uh, I was on my own in Kanatama. We were to have a parent and teachers meeting before prayer meeting. And when it finished at half past seven, then it was prayer meeting. And as I was going into the prayer meeting, a lady said to me, Pastor Victor, there's a girl up river and she's very ill. Could you go tonight and uh, see her? Now, we had electric light in our town. It gets dark every night at six o'clock in the Amazon all year round. We had a generator in town to give us electric light from six o'clock to nine o'clock every night. And after nine o'clock, the lights went out. That's why we had our prayer meeting from half seven to half past eight. When prayer meeting was over, I got a young man from the town, Juan Bautista, to come with me on our mission boat. And we traveled for an hour upriver to treat this little girl. We saw the family. We gave some treatment. We prayed with the family. And we headed back down river. 
During our absence, we didn't know what was taking place in the town, but the local tax collector who had left his city in the uh, left his family rather in the city of Manaus, he was in Kanatama to check the taxes, and he did something that he shouldn't have been doing. He took his guitar and he went out, sat under the window, the open window of a young girl who was lying in her hammock, and he began to serenade her. He was a married man. This was a young woman. And so an Indian in the town, seeing what the tax collector was doing, he, he went with his torch and shot it into the tax collector's eyes and said, what you're doing is not right. You've come from Manaus. You shouldn't be here. And an argument developed, and the tax collector took his guitar and broke it over the Indian's head and ran for the house. As I said, it's now dark. It's dark after 9 o'clock. And the tax collector, smaller than me, but he was not unlike me. Uh, we arrived back in the town at midnight. When I got back into the town, I left Juan Bautista to his house and then came to our house, which was only about less than 100 yards from the river. I came up. We didn't have keys on our door. We opened the door and then put a wooden block on the back of the door. And uh, after midnight, I was going to make myself a cup of tea when suddenly gunfire started. Boom, boom. And I fell to my knees and I thought they were shooting into Hazel Miskimmon's room, so I, I looked in there, there was no, and then I thought they were shooting into our room, went there. By this time I got back up on my feet and suddenly they're hitting the door. Pastor Victor, come quickly, come quickly. What had happened was the Indian, when the tax collector broke the guitar over his bed, he, over his head rather, he went and he got his gun and came hunting for the tax collector who was not unlike me at midnight. In the grace of God, while he was coming down the main street, I was going up the main street, but because I'd only to go about 50 to 100 yards up, I got into the house when he passed the door. When he passed our door, there were two men standing, talking, and he went for them with the gun. One of the men jumped into the river, the other got the gun, and both of them wrestled to outside our house when the gun went off. It didn't hit either of them, but the Indian, angry that he had lost his shot, took his peshera, that is, his fish knife, about this length, and got it and just pulled it up from the base of the neck right up into the temple of the man. Senior Zhuang was his name. They'd carried him onto the boat. He lived on a boat, and now they're he heading at my door. I remember uh, they said, he's been shot, come quickly. And so I grabbed my little medical bag and went down to the boat. He was lying as if he was just about dead. His wife was hysterical and to try and stop the bleeding, she had taken a bag of coffee powder, a kilo of coffee powder, and poured it into the wound. But through the coffee powder, you could see the artery pumping out the blood on his face. And so at now almost one o'clock in the morning, I began to clean out all the granules of coffee from the wound and then sutured, tied up the, the artery and then closed and sewed over, sutured his, his face and... And we worked about half past three, four o'clock in the morning. And in the mercy of God, Senior Zhuang's life was spared. But the impact of attending that man touched the whole of the town. And God began to move in that town. I don't have time to tell you this evening of individual testimonies. Other than this, thank God for the mighty power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I always remember, I remember an old Brigadier General Frost speaking to us at Bible college and saying, remember boys, wherever you go in all the world, the conscience of men and women is on the side of the gospel. There is a truth in the gospel that will touch their hearts and they will respond. And that's how it was. I see my time is gone, but I wish I had time to tell you about Boko to Acre and, and what God did in Boko to Acre. I remember one night in Boko to Acre preaching in the open air and we saw lives transformed in Boko to Acre. Preaching in the open air one Saturday night, and uh, after I'd, it was in the town square and quite a crowd on Saturday night had gathered, our church again was only 100 yards away from the town square. And um, after I'd preached, I went mingling amongst the crowd, giving out, out gospel tracts. And this man said to me, he said, Pastor Victor, I, I'd love to become a Christian. I'm going to church tomorrow morning, and I'm going to become a Christian. I said, but you can do it tonight. Why don't you come down to the church with me now and you accept Christ tonight? No, no, he says, I'll do it tomorrow morning. Fred Orr soon joined me and Fred tried to persuade him. 
come to Christ tonight. And then he said, sirs, I've, I've booked a room, I've bought in the drink, I've invited people for a festa tonight, and I, I can't cancel it. I need to be there, but I'll be at church tomorrow morning, and I will trust Christ the Savior. He left us. Sadly, at that dance, that festa that night, young people under the age of 18 tried to get Christ and tried to get in, and a fight developed, and soon fists were flying, and feet were kicking, and blood was flowing, and and the p local police, simple police, came on the place and, and took away a number of the people, including our friend who wanted to be saved. He was put in an old wooden prison overnight. And at daybreak the next morning, half past five, they took him and frog marched him up the main street of Boca Duarte. Incidentally, Boca Duarte is like a wide west town. There were fights and murders galore in that time. They frog marched him up the street and down the river bank onto a dugout canoe to go to the other side of the River Acre to a place called Santa Maria. It's all forest, jungle. As they got into a canoe, the brothers of the young man they were going for, Zhuangji Deus was his name, when they saw the police coming, they shouted to their brother, Zhuang, run, flee to the forest. Here come the police. The police were crossing the river with our friend. Tomorrow, now Sunday morning, I'll get saved. As they crossed the river, Zhuangji Deus, instead of flowing, uh, fleeing rather to the forest, he went to the wall, took down his gun, and came to the window of that simple jungle home made of bamboo wood, and at the window took careful aim and, boom, shot. The bullet whistled through the air and hit the temple of our friend who said, tomorrow I'll get saved, tomorrow I'll become a Christian. We'd reason with them and try to persuade them, tomorrow. When that bullet hit the temple of his head, he fell into the muddy waters of the river Acre, and we never found his body again. We found his foot inside a shoe. The piranha fish had eaten the body. My friend, it reminds me that when God speaks, it's important to respond. When God speaks, it's important to come to Christ. I wish I could tell you about Tarawaka. Uh, way back 1968, when uh, Sharon, who's with us here tonight, was only a baby, uh, Audrey and I and Sharon went to visit Tarawaka. Our friends, Dr. Tom and Hilgettis, had just arrived in the town. And they were still learning Portuguese. And when we got to the town on a visit, we saw the town was open to the gospel. No missionaries had ever been to Tarawaka before. And so to take the opportunity, we decided to have children's meetings down at the side of the river. And so we took sonographs and started a meeting. And on that day, about 40 boys and girls came along and, trust, uh, uh, and listened to the gospel. Next day, over 100 people, men and women, were all gathered around and throughout all of that week. I had to leave Audrey and Sharon because I had to go away back to Boca Dracre, about two hours by aeroplane away, vast distances out there. And Audrey stayed on for three months. That was from August through to November. And she did studies for the women, did studies on the life of the Virgin Mary, Catholic women, attracting them to the gospel. I went back in November. Sharon had got whooping cough, and I got word, so I went back in November. And when I saw the response of the women and the situation of the town, we felt we needed to do something. Now, I made benches for a week. I worked at making benches. I'd never made benches in my life before, but I, I made benches for people to sit on. Tom had got an old house that he bought. We whitewashed the inside of it and uh, put electric light in it. And on the, I think it was the 16th of November, we opened that house for a week of meetings. On the Sunday night at Catholic Novena at 6 o'clock, the people were coming out at 7 o'clock. And uh, they had to come down past where we had the old house. And I was almost like a, a policeman on Point Street. As the people came down, I just kept directing them into the house. And very soon, the old house was full. We had a week of gospel meetings. I preached every night. Some nights, with my back to the wall, children sitting around my feet, every bench taken and holding, thank the Lord. And uh, during that week, 16 people trusted Christ. Amongst them was a girl called Eolanda, 16 years of age. Eolanda got saved in the middle of that week. And she went home. Home, Her home was a shack over a swamp. Uh, holes in the roof. It was only palm leaves. Boards missing from the wooden walls. 
bamboo floor and uh, a very poor home that she came from. And to tell her mother that she'd become a Christian was quite embarrassing because her mother was a prostitute. Donna Maria Espanol. She told her mother she'd become a Christian and then said, Mom, I'd like you to come to the meetings. Oh, Maria was too embarrassed to come, but we were praying for her. And after a month, Maria came to the meetings. She came to the meetings and listened to the gospel. And one night at the gospel meeting, Ethel Geddes led her to personal faith in Jesus Christ. When she got saved, Ethel said to Tom, she can't go back to be a prostitute. We've got to get her a job. We had a small hospital in Tarawaka, Sansong Gomis was the name of the hospital. I was the administrator, Tom Geddes was the surgeon, and the, the, the local doctor doing everything there. Uh, you got to get her a job, so Tom gave her a job as a washerwoman at the hospital. Hot work out in the open sun uh, over aluminium pots, boiling the linens and the whites. And, and for two years she did that, but every night at the Bible study, Sunday meetings, prayer meeting, Maria was there. Her life was transformed. A prostitute saved by the grace of God. After two years, she, she got a, an easier job as a cook in her kitchen. Now, this wasn't a fancy hospital. I mean, the boards were rotting and holes in the walls. It was a wooden hospital and, as I say, 13 beds in the hospital. So Maria got a job as a cook. <laughs> it wasn't a fancy kitchen either. Every night I went down with Tom for the rod, round, ward round at 9 o'clock and we'd take guns with us. Take guns because when we opened the store, the rats spread everywhere and so we were dead I dick trying to shoot at the rats in the store of rice and beans. After two years as a, as, a, as a cook, Tom came home one day and said, we need a nurse. Now, they're not nurses from the city or Ulster Hospital. Uh, we had to train a nurse. Taught them how to count the pulse. Taught them how to take blood pressure. Gave them an orange and trained them how to give injections. Uh, and so simple things. And, uh, and when when Tom came in and said, we need a nurse, Ethel said, what about Maria? <laughs> Maria, Maria can't count. Ethel says, I'll teach her to count. And so for the next month, every night, Ethel taught Maria how to count. And she used to do om, dois, tres. And then she hit her head and said, what comes after, what comes after three? Four, four, five. And within a month, she had learned to count. She became a nurse. Now, she wouldn't, you wouldn't want her at your hospital. I remember the day I, I did the anesthetic when Tom did the operations, and uh, uh, this man had been operated on. He had a snake bite, and he had got better, and Tom was doing a skin graft. And so when the operation was over, we took him to the ward, and Tom said, keep an eye on him, that when he comes out of the anesthetic, he doesn't touch the wound. So I watched them for 10, 15 minutes, and then Tom said, time for the next operation, Victor, let's go. I said, what about the man? Get Maria to look after him. Now, Maria was about my height and quite strong, and I said, Maria, watch him, make sure he doesn't touch the wound. So Maria stood over him with folded arms, and Tom delayed a minute or two, and I called him, I said, Tom, watch Maria. Maria stood with folded arms, and every time the man stirred and would lift at his head, Maria just clouded him and back out he went. You, you wouldn't want that sort of a nurse. That was Maria. One day a man had come into the hospital. He had been shot in the legs six months ago. For fear of the evil eye, they hid him in the forest so that people wouldn't see him. And during six months, when you're in the forest, this is, when you're sick in that part of Brazil, you don't get washed. Water mustn't go near the body. So this man, for six months, was hidden, and water hadn't touched his body. But the wound was getting worse, and almost a web of skin had formed between the ball of the leg and the thigh. And so they brought him about six days downriver to Tarawaka. We put him in the hospital, and the first law of hospital is you've got to give him a wash, a bath. I was in the hospital that afternoon and came by the wooden ward where the man was. He was sitting on a stool in his birthday suit, and Maria was taking these five-gallon tins of water and just <laughs> pouring them over the head. And the poor man was like a drowned rat. And then she'd take another one, she'd empty that over his head. I, I got out of the road. I wasn't going to say anything or interfere. But that night at 9 o'clock during the ward round, when I got down there with Tom, the poor man was sitting on top of the bed shivering. It's in the tropics. It's hot. And Tom said, what's wrong with you? 
Oh, she said that nurse today nearly, nearly drowned me and she couldn't get the dirt off, so she took Brillo pads. And she did Brillo pad from head to toe. You wouldn't want Maria to be a nurse. One day Tom came home and said, we need a midwife. Ethel said, what about Maria? Maria, do you know what Maria's like? Ethel got her way and Maria became a midwife. As a matter of fact, she developed to be the best midwife in town. And when all of us left Tarawaka in 1986, Maria was the best midwife in town. And after we left, she set up, she had now got a proper home. And adjacent to her home, she built an antenatal clinic. It was there that the rich people, better off people of town, sent their wives and daughters for the confinement of their children in the antenatal clinic. Maria, after some years, she retired. When she was 66 years of age, she retired. And that antenatal clinic became a prayer room. Every Thursday morning they'd meet. And where babies were born, now women, young girls were born again. Amen. Tremendous testimony. Some years ago, Maria passed away. And uh, I guess it's now seven years ago I was back in Tarawaka. I've been back since, but back about seven years ago, doing a week of meetings in the town. And because we have another daughter who was born in that town, Tarawaka, I went to look down where the old hospital was, and here there's a brand new hospital. And as I looked at and admired it, above it is this word, Hospital Familiar, that is family hospital, Dedicado al, that is dedicated to, homenaging in honor of, Maria Espanol. Maria Espanol, Mary Spain as we called her. She's a woman who had been a prostitute in the town, had trusted Christ as Savior. Her life was transformed and became a beacon of light in that town. My friend, that's what the gospel can do. Better still, that church today in Tarawaka is an autonomous church, sends missionaries and pastors. Most of the best pastors in the Acre came from the church in Tarawaka. But today in that church, Maria Espanol's grandson, Fagner, is the pastor of that church. That's what the gospel can do. My friend, our time is gone and I've indulged too much, but let me just say this. The Apostle Paul, looking back, on his life, he thanked God for the ministry that was given to him. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Thank God for the ministry of the gospel. My friend, we're laboring for eternity. Sunday school teacher, keep on serving Jesus. Thank God for the ministry. But Paul, not only thank God for the ministry that was given to him, thank God for the miracle that happened in him. He says, to me, who was a blasphemer and a persecutor, injurious to the church of Christ. Why, he says, I was the chief of sinners. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief and faith and love. And all the ingredients of the gospel is there, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. Thank God. If you're a Christian tonight, my friend, you are a miracle. If you're not a Christian, that miracle can happen to you tonight. Said the Apostle Paul, thank God for the ministry. Thank God for the miracle that happened in me. Thank God for the message. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the message that we have for the world. Uh, Martin Luther said, if we could compact the Bible into one phrase, that would be the phrase. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. My friend, he came for you. The ministry of the gospel, thank God, for the miracle that happened in us, for the message given to us. Now Paul sings the melody, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And we say amen this evening. Thank you for listening. I trust the young people can make it to the martyrs. Don't speed too much. But let's just still our hearts before the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you tonight for your amazing grace. In each individual life, each of us can say, 
Once we were blind, but now we're, we can see. We've been transformed out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And for this, dear Lord, this evening, we thank Thee from the bottom of our hearts. Our Father, we do pray for friends in our meeting who know not Christ as Savior. Lord, we pray that You will give to them the grace tonight to do what they need to do, to do what they will be glad they've done when they stand before Thee in the great eternity. Help them to come to Christ this night. So accept our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Maybe we could just sing two verses of our hymn 279. Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. If you're young people and you need to leave immediately, do feel free to leave as we sing the first and last verses of this hymn, 279. Let's dance, sing from our hearts. 